Well, uh, so uh, the plan uh, for uh, the, the symposium is to, uh, in the sessions that are ahead, to go through the chapters now. So last night we did uh, you know, the 30,000 foot flyover of some of the, the key ideas, and, and then the sessions uh, today and tomorrow are designed to dig into some of the arguments that are there. So those of you that are taking the course, uh, you have your uh, student outline uh, with you. You'll be able to follow along. If you don't, you'll be able to see up on the slides, um, and uh, um, we'll just uh, kind of jump into it. I want to I want to uh, take you through uh, Romans uh, one to three. So uh, we're going to go through three chapters of Romans. <laughs> At this point, you know you're not getting lunch or dinner, right? <laughs> just kidding. Uh, we're going to just focus on a couple of passages in this first part of of Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, that really addresses the issue uh, that we're wrestling with uh, as it relates to how can we read Romans after supersessionism. Uh, last night after the session, we were uh, enjoying a time uh, together, and a couple of questions that were asked, one of them was, is supersessionism the same thing as replacement theology? And I would say yes. Okay, so if you're familiar with that term, I think this is a, a good kind of synonym for that, so you can keep that in mind. Um, and then somebody also mentioned, uh, maybe you ought to suggest to them to try to uh, be willing to unhear uh, all the stuff they've always heard about Romans. Uh, and, uh, to, and so maybe that's a, a good way to kind of think about uh, what we do today is to, is, to, is to look at some of these key arguments. As we mentioned last night, uh, these are the crossroads. These are the key points uh, that uh, decisions that are made at those key points, what produces a supersessionist or replacement reading of Romans. And uh, there's more. Uh, these are just all that I could fit in the 118,000 words that are in this book. Uh, hopefully there'll be a follow-up book that addresses some of the other passages. And so maybe throughout the day, uh, the questions that you have, maybe we can talk about some of the ones that I don't mention uh, in the book because uh, I think there's a way to answer all of them, uh, but this is kind of my first, uh, my first shot at it and kind of a snapshot of the work uh, that I've been doing for a while. All right, so let's uh, look at... Uh, uh, the, this uh, session here is uh, to, to the Jew first. And uh, when we think about uh, uh, to the Jew first, because this, this comes from uh, Romans 1, uh, 16 and 17, uh, and I'm reading from uh, the Tree of Life version. Uh, for I am not ashamed of the good news, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who trusts, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In it the righteousness of God is revealed from trust to trust, as it is written, but the righteous shall live by emunah. And so uh, what we want to think about is this little phrase, uh, to the Jew first, uh, because uh, it's, it's a key kind of debating point over a lot of issues. And Gregory Tatum, uh, someone who's very sensitive uh, to, to these kinds of issues, he's, he looks at the book of Romans and he says, what we see in the book of Romans is a defense of Jewish privilege. Now, you can imagine making a statement like that, others aren't going to like it. So, for example, James Dunn, he says, no, that's not what's going on. In Romans, Paul is attacking Jewish privilege. All right, so here we go. Who's right? Most of us are going to vote for behind door number one, right? <laughs> well, Simon Gathercole says, well, Romans is attacking Jewish privilege and boasting about relationship with God. Now, I could, I could stack a whole bunch more here besides Dunn and Gathercole. Uh, very important uh, contemporary scholars, uh, Dunn and Gathercole are, and uh, they really influence 
a lot of other interpreters of Romans, especially those that write commentaries. And so what I want to suggest is that actually in Romans, that Paul is defending Jewish privilege against Gentile boasting. And uh, because Gathercole recognizes that there's boasting that's going on, but I think he gets it exactly wrong. Right? He goes the wrong way with it, right? That's clearly there. Um, but it's, he's, he's missed uh, the, the direction uh, of Paul's argument. So uh, that's, who, that's what's going on. And uh, so I want to just uh, do is just highlight five ways that Paul maintains the idea to the Jew first. So in that case, we could say it's a five-point sermon. Or we can say it's a one-point sermon with five subpoints, whichever one makes it work out better for you. So uh, we're going to look at this issue of Gentile boasting, uh, Paul's expectation for Jewish uh, Jews continuing to identify as Jews, uh, the no distinction text that you mentioned last night, and then we want to spend some time in uh, one of the more difficult passages, which is in Romans two seventeen to twenty nine, where Paul seems uh, to be saying that uh, circumcision no longer really matters. And then we want to end with uh, just a, an, an affirmation of the fact that Paul uh, thinks that he upholds Torah. Well, when we think about supersessionism, the, what's interesting is it's nothing new. It actually is a first century uh, experience. And so uh, when we think about first century supersessionism, what we see is that Gentiles in Rome uh, believed that in Messiah Gentiles had replaced Israel as God's people. Now, N.T. Wright uh, likes to call this proto-Marcionism. So Marcion becomes a, a is, gets classified as a heretic later on, and uh, his idea is that basically the God of what we see in Israel's scriptural tradition and the God of the New, New Covenant traditions uh, cannot be the same God. So you end up with two, two different gods. And so basically, Marcion uh, likes some of Paul's writings, and so he wants to pull from that. And uh, so N.T. Wright sees here this kind of early... Uh, ideas of the, what later become heretical. Neil Elliott says Romans is against anti-Judaism in the congregation. So now we get this kind of challenge to set up in terms of what is the actual issue uh, that's going on in Romans. Well, in Romans, boasting in any form must be overcome. Right? I mean, this is, so this is what Gathercole and others are recognizing, is that boasting is a problem. Now, uh, those of you that were here last year, if you remember, when I talk about Gentile identity continuing in Messiah, I said except for in four, four, in four areas. It's called the IICU. It's immorality, idolatry, cultural boasting, and unscriptural thought patterns. And so uh, the cultural boasting, the boasting uh, part of that really comes uh, from what we see in Romans. So as Gentiles in Messiah, there are aspects of your life that need to be transformed, Right? There's things that, that uh, you don't need to be like you were before uh, being in union with Messiah. And so boasting seems to be one of those. So in 327, it says, where then is boasting? It is excluded. Uh, in 1118, do not boast over the branches. Do not become proud. All right, so you have this kind of boasting on the individual level, uh, but then also boasting at kind of this corporate level uh, that we are somehow now uh, the new, uh, God's new people, right? This uh, spiritual or new Israel. And, uh, and so those are just two of the examples of places where we see boasting uh, that's particularly relevant to what we're talking about here. So Paul's concern with boasting is that, is that what's going on here is that it highlights a difference with Galatians. So those of you that have gotten the book already and have started to read through it, one of the things that I suggest is that oftentimes we get Romans wrong because we read it through the lens of Galatians. 
And that there's a, actually a better way to read that first is primarily through the lens of 1 Corinthians and Paul's rule in all the ecclesia that Jews are to remain Jews and non-Jews are to remain non-Jews in Messiah. So in Galatians, the threat to Gentile identity is there, right? Uh, they're, they're misappropriating Torah and in such a way that it's likely resulting in them going back to uh, their paganism. And so there's the, one of the answers for that is to uh, kind of go through an identity transformation. And Paul's like, no, that is not the solution. There's not to be an identity transformation. But in Romans, the threat is to Jewish identity, and it's being accepted in the movement. Okay, so in some ways, Galatians and Romans are addressing identity issues, but the opposite side of the issue. So even further in Romans, Paul argues that for the continuing covenantal identity of even non Messiah following Jews. Now, this is where um, the, the work that, uh, that I'm doing and others are really trying to say um, there is a broader concern. And I think is what, what you were hearing earlier is that uh, the, the broader Jewish community is benefiting from research like this, maybe in ways they don't even realize. Now, the thing that we want to be clear is that that's not directly salvific, right? That, that uh, identity is not directly salvific. Um, because God never promised that every Jewish person would be saved. Right? That wasn't, that's not part of the promise, so it's kind of a misunderstanding uh, that often happens uh, in, in these debates. So, so in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the good news, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who trusts, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, as you can imagine, uh, this is kind of the crucial statement. Some people call it kind of the thesis statement for Romans. There's a lot of debates as to what uh, this is, what's going on here and what this actually refers to. So one of the views is called the, the historical view, just kind of a temporal view. And so really what's going on here, for example, Mounts uh, says that there's basically just a historical outworking of salvation. It just goes from Israel and to the nations, and that's all it is. Right? So you really shouldn't be making any more claims about this. It's just recognizing that salvation started with Israel and then moved to the nations. But there's more than just simply a historical retelling going on. Matter of fact, when you look at Romans 2, uh, 9 and 10, uh, for those, uh, those that are Jewish and they're excited about this part of it, when you read those verses, right, you're reminded that judgment comes there first as well. So it's more than just this historical retelling that's going on. Uh, so the Jewish priority then is about election. Um, Deuteronomy 7.6 uh, is, is kind of crucial here. And then uh, later on this afternoon when we come to Romans 9 to 11, uh, we'll revisit uh, verses uh, 26 and 29 on that. So that's one, one approach uh, that basically it's just describing what happened historically. The second approach is the salvation historical view. Now here, uh, it's not about the facts, but it's about how they read the biblical narrative, right? And oftentimes it's kind of a promise fulfillment uh, way of reading it. And basically what they mean by that is that God made promises to Israel, and for whatever reason, there's different arguments for why it happens, but oftentimes it's said that basically uh, when Messiah came, he offered them the kingdom, and, they, and the religious leaders refused it, so then he turned to the nations. And so this, this approach basically says it's just a salvation historical, so uh, it went to the Jews first, and now it's to the nations, uh, meaning that it's no longer for the Jews. So the promise fulfillment scheme is almost always supersessionist. Okay? And uh, the last session talks about uh, confirmation uh, schemes rather than uh, fulfillment schemes as a way to see that in Romans, he's confirming the promises to the patriarchs. 
Uh, and that, that's, that little uh, word difference is crucial. So what ends up happening here, if you're familiar with uh, uh, Donald Hagner's uh, uh, very recent book on this, he basically says, well, what, what comes to be called Christianity is really fulfilled Judaism. And what he means by that right, is that basically there's really nothing of Judaism there. Right? It's just basically a kind of a Gentile church. So Hagner's approach uh, generally is, is very problematic. Uh, the third approach uh, is uh, the, what we see here with this uh, to the Jew first is Paul's mission strategy. And so Mark Nanos, he says, what we see here to the Jew first and the Greek is what we see in the book of Acts, and that basically it's his mission, right? He went to the synagogue, and then he went to the Gentiles. And, uh, and so questions about Paul's Gentile mission uh, in regard to his Jewish mission then become kind of the, the debating points. Now, this approach is not uh, a supersessionist approach at all, um, but I think there's more to it than just simply uh, acknowledging this was what Paul's mission was, uh, for example, in the book of Acts. Uh, so uh, Jewish privilege or covenantal social identity is what I want to suggest is being uh, indicated by the phrase uh, to the Jew first. So Paul ascribes a social identity by the use of the two terms, thus they continue to be relevant within the movement. I remember from last night and last year, social identity, it's that part of who you think you are based on the groups that you're part of. Right? So it's that we're talking about the kind of group-related uh, issues. So, uh, again, we won't spend too much time in, in uh, syntax, uh, but uh, based on the syntax here, some think Paul's focus is on the Gentiles, right? Because uh, of the way that it's structured in the Greek, but the presence of first uh, in the verse here suggests that that's not the case. Okay, so it's almost like he's, they, they'll say basically, oh, he's saying to the Jew first, and then the Greek, kind of a thing, based on, on the grammar and syntax there. Uh, but, uh, but the use of first here uh, actually works against uh, that claim. So uh, the choice of Greek rather than Gentile is actually really interesting. Oftentimes, replacement uh, approach readings of Romans basically wants to always make these synonymous. But nobody walked around in the first century saying, I'm a Gentile. Matter of fact, it's a term that's only in the plural. So you would actually have to say, we are Gentiles or something like that. Um, but, uh, but somebody would identify as, as a Greek. And so this suggests really what we're talking about is this everyday lived experience. And remember we talked about uh, trying to uh, un unlearn some of what we, we knew about Romans. One of them is, to see, is that we come to Romans and often see it as a systematic theology. But instead of doing that, come to it like an occasional letter, like all of other Paul's letters. And then it forces us to think about that everyday lived experience of what they're wrestling with. So Jews and Greeks uh, then function as a nested uh, subgroup within this kind of overarching understanding of those that believe. Okay? If you remember from last night, the, the nesting dolls, the babushka dolls, right? So your existing identities, your gender identity doesn't go away, uh, but now it's going to be informed by who you are in Messiah. Same thing for ethnic identities. So believers comprise then two subcategories, Jews and Greeks, identities that are not erased or eventually transcended in Messiah. Because what ends up happening with those that work with this, that want to acknowledge that some of this might be true, they're like, well, that's okay for a while, but it eventually, it just uh, kind of goes away. Well, what, do you, what goes away? Well, what goes away is Jewish identity, right? That seems to be the one that always is problematic. And it's always weird to me that the gospel of Messiah, an implication of that would be that Jewish identity would go away. It, just, it doesn't seem to make sense at all. But doesn't Paul think that there's no longer a distinction between Jews and Greeks in Messiah, right? These are called the no distinction texts. 
right? The righteousness of God through putting trust in Messiah Yeshua to all who keep on trusting, for there is no distinction. And then in Romans 10, 12, for there is no distinction between Jews and Greeks, for the same Lord is Lord of all, richly generous to all who call upon him, right? These are the two verses they go to in Romans, say, see, all that stuff sounds good that you say that to Jew first is saying that there's a continuing identification uh, for Jewish identity in Messiah, but what about these texts? Well, what we're really talking about when we look at these texts is that God doesn't discriminate based on discernible differences. Now, the word here is diastole, and uh, it's translated in, in a lot of your translations as distinction. Uh, but one of the other ways that it can be translated is, is discrimination. So in regards to the reception of God's righteousness, no discrimination is made. God doesn't discriminate despite distinguishable differences that continue. Now, if we look then at 3.22, righteousness of God through putting trust in Messiah Yeshua to all who keep on trusting, for there is no distinction or difference. Now, distinction, okay, this is just an English uh, word we're wrestling with, again, with this Greek word underneath it. This is what's interesting. So there's, there's a, it's called a, it's a lexicon. It's just a fancy word for a dictionary in Greek. Uh, BDAG is the one that's used as a standard one. When you read the entry for this, this is what it says. There is no evidence for distinction in the resources. In other words, the evidence that's there, uh, the word diastole is never used for the word distinction. But it still gets translated that way in the English versions. And one of the reasons is because they don't have other categories to go to. Right? Part of what we're talking about here is creating new categories for interpreters to think about what they see in the biblical text. So contextually, difference is a better word to use uh, than distinction, not to mention the fact that there's no evidence that the word, uh, the idea of distinction is ever uh, associated with diastole. So in 322, since there is no difference, the point is there's no, not a, there's no distinction between Jews and, and Greeks, but with regard to sin, there's no difference. Why? Because all have sinned. All right, so look to the person next to you and say, did you know you're a sinner? Doesn't that feel good? Doesn't that feel good to tell that person that they're a sinner for crying out loud? <laughs> yes, there's, there's no, as it relates to those differences that continue with regard to sin, we're all, it's just us chickens here, right? We're all sinners, right? All right, and then in, t- in verse 10, 12, for there's no distinction or discrimination or difference, we figure which one it would be, between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, richly generous to all who call upon him. Now, that's verse 12, and that verse gets taken out of context to say that Paul doesn't think that the Jews uh, continue to be Jews and Messiah. But when you read verse 13, it says, Everyone who calls upon the name of Adonai shall be saved. So what's the point? Is that God does not discriminate. All can be saved through Messiah. Isn't that awesome? That I don't have to go through an identity change to be saved. There's not a barrier now for salvation. Right, that through the work of Messiah, we have and can have eternal life. So 10.12 is not saying uh, that there's no uh, distinction between Greeks and Jews, but that all humanity, just like all humanity had sinned, all humanity has to call upon the Lord for salvation. All right, so those are kind of the two biggies. Uh, that people just tend to go to. The Jew first is not really talking about a continuing identification and these distinction texts. But if we're going to maintain the idea that Paul continues uh, to think in Israel-centric categories, 
one of the more challenging passages is Romans 2, 17 to 29. Because this is the section where Paul is seen to be giving Gentiles Jewish identity. This is the place where he's seen to be saying that circumcision is spiritualized now and that physical circumcision no longer matters. When students ask me in class, Dr. Tucker, do you think that Paul would, would circumcise his son? I'm like, absolutely. I think Paul actually believed in eighth-day circumcision uh, based on a couple of things that, that he does in his, in his letters. But uh, that's, that's telling you something about somebody's perspective on the role of circumcision and how it continues. So, uh, I feel bad in, in saying this here, um, but uh, uh, because uh, my guess is there's way more uh, theological reflection on circumcision uh, than what I just want to say here. This is just a quick summary uh, to, to uh, refresh our memories about circumcision as a sign for male Jewish identity. Right? Circumcision was to, uh, to be a sign of the covenant. This is building off of Genesis 17. All males needed to be circumcised, including Abraham and his servants. All Abraham's male descendants would need to be circumcised, and any male descendant that was not circumcised would be cut off from the covenant. Right? So this is kind of just the, the refresher of, of, of this idea, and you just wonder, would Paul continue to affirm that? Well, the covenant passed down through one lineage, Abraham's de, uh, descendants, Isaac, to Jacob, not Ishmael. Though if you're interested, by the way, you should check Genesis 21.13. Um, and I'm happy to talk about it maybe during the lunch or something if you're curious because there's a really interesting verse with regard to Ishmael uh, there on this issue. But Ishmael did not receive the blessings. So being a physical descendant of Abraham is not necessarily the same thing as being a member of the covenant people. Now this is when it gets really difficult now, right? Because we're, tr- we're trying to navigate uh, uh, because the, in this case, the, the uh, replacement reading of Romans, they have arguments. If they didn't, that perspective wouldn't be continuing. Uh, though their association with Abraham resulted in blessing, right? In in some ways, Ishmael becomes one of the more blessed. Uh, And what Paul does with Galatians 4.21, uh, he he seems to be thinking of of Hagar in a covenant category, which is really interesting, but I'm getting sidetracked, so I better stop. Uh, So, uh, but in Genesis 17.14, there's a story that Moses seems to have forgotten some of this, right? And had to be reminded that that if you're not circumcised, you'd be cut off from the covenant. And so the question is, does Paul think in these categories? So the point is that Jewish identity is not only genealogical. It is a matter of physical uh, descent, but it's also a choice. And so what I mentioned earlier is, is crucial, that as we think about circumcision, we want to think about it through the category of 1 Corinthians and not primarily through uh, Galatians. I, I still think we can resolve it, but whenever I present this in class, students always jump to certain passages in Galatians, right, to, to be able to answer those. So the, the crisis in Galatia uh, was more polemical, and he's addressing specific issues relating to Gentile identity continuing. But in 1 Corinthians 7, we have Paul's rule that was a man already circumcised when he was called, he should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called, he should not be circumcised. Okay, and so in other words, uh, Paul says no to identity transformation. All right, so uh, when we think about then, uh, the idea here is what we're going to unpack over the, uh, the afternoon is the idea of Torah-informed praxis. The circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping God's commands is what counts. But hold a second, Paul. Isn't circumcision a command? Yes. Right, so, so again, this, this verse, which is very helpful in the context, is often gone to to say, see, 
Paul just no longer thinks uh, that uh, uh, the circumcision matters. But when we think about these commands, especially when you look at 1 Corinthians uh, 19 to 23, and this is what we talked about uh, last year, is that the commands are different for Jews and non-Jews, right? And that's why you see what you see here in the worship setting here in terms of the way that that's embodied, right, differently uh, based on those commands. And so in Romans, Gentiles need to understand the continuing significance of circumcision for Jewish identity, even within the Messiah movement, and how circumcision for Jews is relevant to them as non-Jews, right? Remember last night we talked about what Paul's doing in terms of he's construing or forming an in-Messiah identity for these Gentiles. And so he, what he's saying, he says, I need you Gentiles to understand the continued importance of Jewish circumcision. Hmm. All right, so uh, some of the key ideas here. Uh, one is uh, when we look at uh, chapter 2, verse 17, uh, one of the big debating points is over uh, what's called the so-called Jew. And that's in 2.17. So, so if you call yourself a Jew, and so the argument then becomes, well, this person's really not a Jew, or maybe this person is a proselyte, and there's just a lot of debates about that. And so uh, the identity then of this so-called Jew is crucial uh, to getting uh, 217 to 29 correct. So 217, but if you call yourself Jewish and rely upon the Torah and boast in God, and so the question is, is this a Jewish person or a Gentile proselyte? So what I mentioned in the book is that the, the person in view here is likely uh, an ideal, in Messiah, Jewish teacher of Gentiles. Okay? And the, kind of an ideal Jewish teacher of Gentiles. But the person could have been a proselyte. Right? This is, it's, it's, uh, there's, just, there's good arguments for both sides of that. All right? And so why an in Messiah, Jewish teacher of Gentiles? Well, because that's what Paul is. Uh, as I mentioned last night, that's what Peter is as well. Uh, but I won't go any further uh, on that uh, uh, crazy idea, right? That Paul consistently uses eudaios to refer to ethnic Jews. So so-called, then, uh, would be one who is publicly known to be a Jew. Now, this passage is a diatribe, all right? And this is just a, a, it's a way to use um, uh, symbols and figures of speech uh, that highlight that we're probably talking about um, a, a set piece for an illustration. He's, got, he's making a point. And that's going to be crucial because what happens in these debates is they forget what the main point is. And the main point is, this is the takeaway, that the Jewish person, the Jewish teacher of Gentiles, who has congruence between what they teach and what they do is a great model for Gentiles and Messiah to follow. Right? You don't want to follow somebody who teaches one thing and lives another way. Right? And that's the takeaway for Gentile identity. So whatever else is going on in 2, 17 to 29, the takeaway is for those in those teaching, make sure your teaching and your life pattern are the same. And that as you're looking for models, 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about this, like, follow me as I follow the Lord. Right? And you're looking for those to emulate, but you want to see that kind of, that kind of congruence. All right, so, uh, so there's still focus on Gentiles. And the continuing of Jewish identity provides a model for the obedience of faith. So the fact that what ends up happening early on uh, in, in the kind of second century, and then the, the third century, you start to see, a, a, because of other historical reasons, uh, a, a significant drop in Jewish uh, believers uh, in the Messiah movement. And so these texts get reinterpreted. 
And that becomes the challenge because now there's no Jewish people around them right, to make sense and to help them make sense of, of what's going on in the text there. So uh, that's one of the benefits of a ministry context like this, right? that you're able to get that exposure uh, to the broader, second tem- for us, Second Temple text and understanding what's going on there. So uh, in 2.25, it says, Circumcision is indeed worthwhile if you keep the Torah. But if you break Torah, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So this is not about Gentile salvation, but the importance of the contribution of Jewish and Gentile identity distinctions within the Messiah movement. So circumcision and the life uh, that comes from that, Torah praxis, is connected to Jewish identity. This is why I mentioned last night, if we, if we do away with Torah, Jewish identity is eviscerated of its core. So Paul never teaches Jews where to cease circumcising their children. Okay, so he has these phrases, circ- uh, circumcision and uncircumcision, and he's going to do this again in, in Romans 15, that are continuing identity labels uh, within the group. Uh, so in uh, 3.30, uh, there's uh, an interesting, because it sets up what we're going to talk about as we finish in 331, but uh, that Paul rejects the forced circumcision of Gentiles because it undermines the oneness of God in the agency of faith. Right? So Paul's not against uh, continuing circumcision for Jews. But when it comes to Gentile identity, for some reason, that misses something as it relates to God's oneness and the role of faith. So we don't conflate the forbidding of the right, then, uh, with Gentiles among the forbidding of the right uh, among the Jews. And so, in terms of 1 Corinthians 7, 19, uh, that brings more of a uh, uh, kind of a, a trigger uh, with regard to what's going on in Deuteronomy 10, uh, 16. And since uh, there's at least a class going on right now for the way that uh, Deuteronomy helps us understand Paul, I would say that is crucial. Uh, Paul was a virtuous reader of Deuteronomy. All right, so what's the point of 225? Gentiles to see that the way their bodies should be dedicated to doing God's will, right, as modeled by the way circumcised bodies should be doing the same for their pattern of life. Paul wants us to dedicate our bodies to doing God's will. And so seeing somebody who is living in congruence to that, Paul saying to Gentiles in Rome, you are lucky, you are in a diverse community and you can benefit from it, right? But this is the difficulty, right? When we benefit from that, we want to rush to be the same. And that's not what Paul's calling them to do. I, I always tell the students, I want, I, by the time you get done with my class, I want you to be a better version of yourself. Now, they usually don't believe that because they're just trying to get an A and that's all they care about anyways, right? But they think that I want the, whatever answer I want on the test and those kind of things. And, and you can tell when their heart's not in it. And, uh, and so, uh, so it's not to try to make them all like me. That'd be terrible. I can't imagine. I, I can tell you for sure my wife, Amber, would say that would be a disaster. <laughs> she only wants one. One of me and that's it. Uh, so, so this idea of spiritualizing circumcision uh, is kind of then becomes the crucial issue. He's not spiritualizing circumcision away from the continuation of that for Jews and so Jewish identity then in this real circumcision uh, that Dunn and Gathercol and others will argue is a Christian one. So Francis Watson, for example, he says, the uncircumcised Gentiles who obey Torah are true Jews, circumcised in a spiritual sense. And that's Paul's view. But is that Paul's view? Has Paul replaced physical circumcision with spiritual circumcision? Well, here are the verses, verses 28 and 29. For a person is not a Jew... 
who is one outwardly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical. Rather, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and real circumcision is a matter of the heart. It is spiritual and not literal. Such a person receives praise not from others, but from God. Right? So now you can see, it was, you're tracking with me, and you're going, this is, this is right, I'm with you, but I know these two verses are coming. Right? I, I did this uh, smaller section of this in a conference, and uh, you know, when I finished, uh, the guy came up, he goes, that's all good, except for you didn't really address these verses. And I'm like, well, I can't do it all, but I'm eventually going to get there, right? So what's he doing here? Well, Paul is clarifying for his Gentile audience aspects of Jewish embodiment of Jewish identity, similar to the way Israel's prophets do. Paul's not doing anything different at that point, right? If you think about Israel's prophetic tradition, they're very clear uh, on, on what it means uh, to, to live uh, a life of justice. Right? And, to, and to think in those kind of categories. And uh, so Watson disagrees. Uh, what he says is that, um, that Paul is broadening Jewish identity to include non-Jewish Messiah followers. In other words, what, what Francis Watson says uh, is that uh, the physical descendants have been replaced. Right? And this is why I'm setting up the arguments that I want to set up for, for later on. But Watson is likely wrong. Why? Because Paul proves, uh, provides in Messiah Gentiles guidance for the way they should view Jewish identity. Right? It's, it's almost as, as if Francis is going to this. Well, his whole book is based on the fact that Paul's trying to get MSI Gentiles out of the synagogue. Right? So he's, gonna, he's clearly going to be reading this this way. Um, and so Paul's argument then goes the other way. They should remain affiliated with Jews, and certain practices will differ uh, between Jews and non-Jews, but he's not disparaging those. He's putting those in context. This is what life is going to be like in Messiah in Rome. And it's different than it's going to be in Corinth or in Galatia. So certain aspects of Jewish identity are defined inwardly or more precisely based on one's motives. Okay, so, so Paul's not uh, kind of doing this kind of traditional, um, the, the flesh is bad and the spirit is good. For Paul, this is God's creation is good. And, uh, and so the focus then is the motive for undertaking an external behavior and more specifically practice what you preach. So this includes the commitment to Israel's uh, vocation among the nations if teaching is being set apart for God's purposes. So as, we, as I'll make the case later, there is a continuing vocational election for Israel to be a light among the nations. And one of those aspects of that is that they have the oracles of God. Right? They are shepherd, shepherds of the oracles of God. Uh, but Paul brings out something uh, that was mentioned earlier. It was this issue of suffering. And, uh, and so uh, why? Uh, well, because I think that there's a, there's a kind of a, a rush to get away from suffering. And when we see in Paul's letters more specifically, he really needs to make clear to Gentiles and Messiah, if you're going to follow Messiah, it is a way of suffering. Right? And you don't look at suffering as some kind of judgment from God. Now, we should say, especially in light of this week, uh, sometimes suffering is suffering. And, and, and it's, it takes a lot of maturity, uh, theological reflection to discern God's hand when it comes to suffering, right? So, so we gotta, we got to walk that uh, to get a good handle on it because uh, that, that uh, kind of approach could also be uh, misused. And I don't want that to be heard that way. So when he says uh, that it's spiritual and not literal... He's not saying that literal circumcision no longer matters. He's likely saying that it's a work of God. The Oath of Solomon does the same thing, but here's, point. here's Paul's point. Paul reminds in Messiah Gentiles of the importance of being dedicated in their service to God. 
And he's going to do this when we get to, to Romans 13. He's going to make this connection said in terms of what we mentioned last night is that what's, what's occurring in the Messianic era is that aspect of the Spirit that allows us to fulfill Torah. Okay, so we get in three, one to two. Uh, you would think then it's traditional approach uh, that Paul basically is disparaging uh, circumcision. And uh, so E.P. Sanders uh, thought that Paul had relegated Israel's election and the Mosaic law into oblivion. But did he? In, in 3, 1 and 2, it says this, But then what is the advantage of being Jewish? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they were entrusted with the sayings of God. So 3, 1 and 2 suggests an ongoing expectation for circumcision as a marker of Jewish identity and Messiah. Right? And so you, immediately you're going to be thinking, oh no, we've got to go to Galatians 5.2. Right? Again, get too far with this. Galatians 5.2 is referring to Gentiles in Galatia who were misusing Torah. They were misappropriating Torah. That was the issue there. So what is the answer to the question of Jewish advantage? They possess Torah. They possess Torah. So the possession of Torah is crucial to Jewish identity. That would Torah observance would be then inconsequential. So Deuteronomy 26 and Isaiah 49 makes this connection between Torah and Israel's vocation. So Israel's vocation to draw nations to God is made explicit through the keeping of Torah. So if you're in a context where Jews are discouraged in Messiah from continuing to observe Torah, they're missing out on this vocational election of Israel that continues to be a light to the nations. So Paul doesn't dismiss the continued value of circumcision of Jews in 2.25 to 3.2. What he's doing is he's writing to Gentiles that need to align their teaching and their social practice. Now, There's a little hint in 3.8 that this is going on, uh, that they're either teaching wrong or they're behaving wrong uh, that, might be going, that might give us some more insight into that. So he teaches Gentiles that circumcision is not redundant for in Messiah Jews. And so uh, and then Paul continues on his argument in 3, and then he gets to the end of chapter 3, and he says, great news, do we nullify through faith Torah? He says, no. On the contrary, we establish it. So Paul upholds Torah. Do we nullify Torah through faithfulness? May it never be. On the contrary, we uphold Torah. So in 331, Paul offers support for the continuation of Jewish identity within the Messiah movement. Right? But the problem is, you know, the other side says, nope, that cannot be true. Right? So John Barclay thinks that Paul ultimately uh, might get there in spite of it, but not so sure. Tom Ryan with witnessing function is in view. Doug Moo, there's no continuing relevance for Torah. Brian Rosner says that basically it's just as a prophecy, like messianic prophecy only. And so even in, a, in one of Paul's kind of full-throated support of Torah, immediately uh, the kind of um, broad group of interpreters say, no, he's not doing it there either. Romans 3.31, the relationship between the Messiah movement and the broader synagogue community is crucial. There's continuity uh, because of this eschatological experience of faith. So 3.31, this upholding Torah, is going to be supported, what we're going to see uh, later today in Romans 10.4. When someone receives righteousness by faith, Torah's goal is realized. So Paul's trying to make sense of God's actions, of faithfulness to Israel, and how Jews and Gentiles are going to relate as God's family. All right, so great news, we are at the end. So uh, elbow your husband and say, John, wake up, all right? Because this is all you need. You just need the, the kind of summaries here at the end. So 
a, a, uh, so what are we talking about when the, to, the, uh, to the Jew first, right? A post-supersessionist or a renewed reading of to the Jew first, what can we say? Well, we can say is that Paul expects Jewish identity to continue in Messiah. He doesn't think these existing identities are erased. Number two, Paul didn't reject circumcision for Jews and showed Gentiles that Jewish faithfulness is relevant to them. And number three, Jewish vocational election continues and Paul does not disparage Torah Rather, he upholds it. So hopefully that'll give you a sense of what Paul's doing when he talks about to the Jew first.